Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where we share our latest insights on recent developments in politics and policy in the UK, Europe and worldwide. Hello and welcome to the latest in our series of Global Council podcasts looking at the future of the European Union, its politics and its policy dynamics. Today, I, Tom White, uh, Director of Global Council and responsible for our Brussels office, am joined by Denzel Davidson and Anna Martinez, two of our practice leads focused on the EU policy agenda. Today, we're going to look at one of the concepts that has really risen up the agenda and found expression in various statements from EU political leaders, which has potentially significant consequences for the overall direction of EU policy over the next decade. This is the concept of open strategic autonomy, which to many has echoes of traditional industrial policy and of um, potentially giving some clarity to what the new EU Commission leadership means when it talks about a geopolitical commission. Um, we're going to talk today a bit about what this concept means, look ahead at what it might mean in practice for the EU's policy agendas in areas like financial services, trade policy, sustainability, and other forms of economic regulation. And we're also going to look at some of the political impetus and calculations that have led to this concept becoming more mainstream. Um, perhaps, Denzel, I can start with you. Um, what do we mean by open strategic autonomy? Well, thanks, Tom. Uh, it's an interesting question, and it's also an interesting question to put to EU policymakers, because uh, there isn't yet a perfect agreement to what it does mean. In essence, it means making the EU a doer and not a done-to. And it was quite nicely summed up in a speech by Charles Michel, the uh, European Council president, and by the way, and not unconnectedly, a close ally of President Macron's as less dependence and more influence. So what does this mean? This means being less reliant on others in technology and perhaps being less reliant on others when it comes to sources of investment for critical raw materials like rare earths and on supply chains. And it means being able to that the EU can stand up for itself and assert its interests in the face of pressure from other powers, particularly other superpowers like China and the US. And it means something on uh, less dependence on security. Now, uh, Charles Michel in his speech said does not mean protectionism, but there's a bit of a question whether he doth protest too much there. Uh, whether, as I said, we can allow further definition than this, not clear. So leading EU powers like Germany haven't worked out for themselves exactly what it means, what the balance is between the open bit and open strategic autonomy and the autonomy. And there's a clear tension there. Now, uh, the, the original source, the inspiration for it is chiefly French. Uh, this is in many ways a repackaging of what has been France's vision for the EU since the beginning of the European Economic Community in 1957. Uh, it, uh, a, a means for Europe to stand on its own uh, feet and France through Europe to assert its interests in a world of, of giants where European powers that are 100 years ago were the superpowers of their day, are no longer. Uh, and we can see this um, typically fluently expressed by the French Europe minister, formerly Macron's Europe advisor, Clément Beaune, in a long essay where he writes, sovereignty, as they call it, is the ability to defend or uphold one's interests and values. 
And European uh, sovereignty is, is the, the French version of open strategic autonomy, at least the strategic autonomy bit. But um, because sovereignty is a word, so associated with France, the EU institutions prefer another name. But I mean, really, uh, on this, how, uh, examining how this the sort of French way of doing things, this is not um, necessarily even uh, a new bottle for old wine. It's just a, a new label for a, an old bottle. Um, but uh, of course, I was, as we're seeing it deployed in European Council conclusions and elsewhere, it's now being used pretty liberally, uh, which is typical of, as I said, of, of politics everywhere, because people want to uh, acquire some fresh political momentum for their pre-existing agendas. Uh, in uh, Charles Michel's case, in his speech, he applies it to everything from access to drinking water to data protection law to para-taxation, which almost drains the thing of meaning entirely. But nonetheless, uh, there is something big and new here. That is an important evolution in, in, in my own understanding of what we're talking about here, because in a lot of our work with clients and also in our series of interviews with policymakers, we've looked quite substantially at the economic meaning of open strategic autonomy and whether this meant um, additional restrictions on the movement of data or on the approach to supervision of individual firms. And we were interpreting autonomy as in some ways meaning a, a, a version of or a modern version of the traditional concept of autarky and self-sufficiency. But it sounds from what you're saying as though this is really about power and about a, a version of taking control um, in, in what has become a, a widespread move uh, around the world to um, offer citizens a greater sense of government power and projecting that power. Um, Anna, perhaps I could come to you and ask about why this concept has managed to gain support from um, a much wider pool of member states than traditionally supported what Denzel characterized as a as a French vision of, of the EU and the EU single market. Um, why has it managed to gain such support and why are so few opposing it? Thank you, Tom. Um, I think there have been two events that have had an impact on the debate across um, EU capitals. I think the first one has been the COVID-19 crisis. So prior to the pandemic, uh, the discussion in Brussels around reducing the EU's dependency on China um, focused uh, perhaps on, on three areas. The belief that the terms of trade were unfair, uh, that Beijing is using investment in the EU to plunder European firms' intellectual property, um, and the last one, to give it control over vital infrastructure. But what the COVID-19 um, crisis exposed is, in fact, the fragility of the global supply chain. And we've seen this in several countries uh, where uh, they had a shortage of, of um, personal protective equipment um, and received perhaps uh, faulty tests or faulty masks when they needed them the most. So as a result, um, I think concern over the EU's dependency have become much wider and will in the future encompass policy areas that that go beyond 
the three areas that I mentioned before and certainly beyond like uh, digital policy and telecom. So um, COVID-19 has uh, increased the consensus on the need to strengthen uh, certain EU industries to avoid dependence on other countries. So you could say that there is more support for the idea of European champions, but here uh, there's still no unanimity. So member states are still very divided. And I think that's where we get uh, to, to the second uh, event that has influenced the, the debate. Um, and that is Brexit. Um, the departure of the UK from the EU has um, in a way shifted uh, the balance of, of, of the discussions and, and has removed a country that has previously shown um, that it can lead member states, um, particularly those um, concerned about preserving openness. So without the UK and most importantly, you know, with Paris and Berlin working closely together on this issue, other larger member states such as Italy or, or Spain or, or Poland um, will find it tricky or quite difficult to build a blocking minority. Um, there will be countries such as Spain, for instance, that will want to stay close to France and Germany. Uh, and will therefore, I believe, go along with the plan. Um, but the, the key question is how this will be applied in practice and how member states will react um, if or, or when um, it's seen as benefiting mainly France and Germany. That's a very important thing we're going to come on to now, which is to look at what this might mean in practice. And there's an interesting parallel with one of the other areas where the EU consensus has moved since the UK's departure, which is in the area of Eurozone governance. And it's also true in the area of the EU budget, where essentially France has succeeded in making the case at a high strategic level for um, what you might call greater ambition, greater solidarity, greater integration, um, and has been perhaps uh, less prescriptive about what that means in practice, but has managed to secure a, a high level strategic objective that has then played out at the level of detail. And I, I wonder whether we might see something similar here on this question of economic strategy. So, so Denzel, perhaps if I could come to you and say, you know, it, it's all very well to have a, um, a new overarching concept such as open strategic autonomy, but what is it likely to mean in practice for the actual day-to-day -day legislation of the EU? Well, the way it's, uh, it's explained is that the EU is equipping itself with the tools it needs to defend itself against uh, unfair competition, trade wars, and the acquisition of strategic assets by untrusted partners, and the tools to uh, promote itself in the world. It's a bit like uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger as Terminator in Terminator 2. You know, he's arming himself with shotguns, machine guns, pistols and the like, and uh, the EU's getting a, a, a trade bazooka or two. So uh, this kind of falls into, into defensive and offensive categories. Uh, defensively, the means to uh, retaliate against, um, uh, uh, against the, uh, the gumming up the WTO by, by the US uh, and its behavior on the appeals court, so it can impose tariffs uh, itself, uh, where the uh, WTO has, has initially found a, a, a breach. 
Um, it, uh, it's consulting on an anti-subsidy anti tools, and it's looking at an international procurement agreement to penalize firms from third country countries which uh, haven't reciprocated access their public procurement markets. Uh, and it means looking also again at supply chains, uh, but uh, it'll, it will also, and is reckoning with uh, the economic reasons why these supply chains exist in the first place. And then uh, more offensively, uh, there is support for European champions. The last kind of conclusions from the beginning of the month uh, underlined the uh, importance of important projects of common European interests, such as on batteries and the internet of things and how they merited support from EU and national funds. And uh, the worry of some member states, uh, particularly in Scandinavia, is that these European champions are in fact uh, French and German national champions by another name. And then there is equipping the EU uh, uh, to, uh, to have its own defence industrial base, expanding that. It's a new budget line for that in the EU budget that didn't exist before. And uh, the Commission is organising itself around that. And then there's a balance between the two of promoting uh, European values, such as dealing with, uh, uh, with climate change and how you uh, ensure that you don't get carbon leakage and that European companies uh, which uh, do act to bring down carbon emissions aren't economically penalised for doing so with a, with a carbon uh, border uh, levy. Uh, in some areas, uh, it's yet to be worked out exactly where how st open strategic autonomy will be applied. Uh, financial services is certainly one of them. Uh, we have the launch of a new uh, capital markets union action plan uh, that uh, is there for the prior reasons that uh, the EU is too reliant on banking as a source of, of lending and investment in the real economy, uh, and that the EU uh, needs more investment uh, to boost boost its growth rate. Well, there's a, an open strategic autonomy aspect to it. Uh, the boost to the international role for the euro, which in turn is related to the EU's ability to withstand the US's use of the dollar as a weapon to get its way on sanctions, where there's a disagreement between the uh, US and the EU, uh, a desire for uh, the EU to be a more independent uh, financial system with financial infrastructure, but that's got to be balanced against the overall need for investment to deliver the growth that's needed and a, a sane desire to avoid jeopardizing financial stability. So I, I'm just to try and draw a couple of conclusions from this for myself, it sounds as though on the one hand, the EU has decided to pursue this path of um, strengthening its toolkit in order to build some leverage with its international partners and of course we, we saw this in a different field in the area of trade policy earlier in the year when the EU when clearly looking at the negotiations with China over an investment agreement was at the, was off, was creating some tools that would incentivize China to come to the table for that agreement with the threat of acting unilaterally and you can see that potentially being one of the elements here but it, it does seem as though there is a commitment to pursue this path also on its own merits. And this is where I would go back to one of Anna's points about the, the bygone era of um, when, when the UK was a member. And, and I was, when working for the UK government, part of discussions about industrial strategy at the European level. And one of the interesting reasons, and I think important to remember reasons why it was not pursued with such gusto 
back then was because of the question of feasibility and achievability and is it actually possible to use your regulation to use your spending in ways that create and project power rather than just trying to deal with things case by case so when you regulate your chemical sector or you regulate your technology sector or you make your decisions about competition you would normally be making those on the merits of those individual elements of regulation um, and it can be very difficult to introduce another objective um, similarly when you're spending public money on technologies and Denzel you listed several of them where the EU has become more ambitious such as batteries when you're spending money those those decisions if they're going to be efficient and offer value for money to taxpayers need to be proportionate and offer return on their own merits it's quite difficult if you're also trying to spend that money in ways that um, project power around the world so I, I think we will have to see how this um, new concept both is applied in practice and whether it's possible to um, take factor this into your political decision making um, I mean what what would be your views, Anna and Denzel, about, about whether this is something that's here to stay or whether it's something perhaps a bit more temporary? Well, I think uh, open strategic autonomy is definitely here to stay. What is undetermined uh, is the extent uh, of its application, is that the EU is convinced that uh, in this world, a less secure world, uh, it needs new tools to defend itself. Uh, and some of the differences with the US are not going to go away, such as on digital taxation. But uh, the, the biggest determinant of uh, how important this is going to be to the EU's future is, of course, the American presidential election next month. And that will fundamentally decide whether we live in a world where there are two big powers, the EU and the US, supporting a rules-based global order, in which case the EU can relax a bit, or whether it's the EU by itself, in which case the EU will be more uh, on the defensive. Uh, a lesser determinant in the long run is probably the UK-EU relationship. Uh, the EU has a decision about whether uh, it wants the, the openness of its strategic autonomy uh, to allow like-minded partners to plug in and promote uh, common interests. Uh, that is to be seen. Uh, they, the better the overall UK-EU relationship, uh, the easier that should be, the worse, uh, the less inclined. The risk to the EU is that this does turn into protectionism. And if it does, then that will undermine everyone else's incentives to play along in a rules-based global order. So uh, the, there is a chance that the more you emphasize the autonomy, the uh, more you undermine openness and the strategic bit as well. I, I agree with Denzel and I and I think it's also here to stay. I think from the point of view of other member states, um, you know, the, the, the larger member states that I was talking about earlier, Poland, Italy, Spain, they'll go they'll want this to be um, discussed on a case-by-case -case basis, I, I assume, um, because um, I think particularly in the case of Spain, they've also made it clear um, that 
they will want to make sure that this is beneficial for all. Um, and they have um, emphasized their doubts definitely uh, before um, the COVID-19 crisis when Macron was talking about European champions, they have emphasized that this does need to be uh, balanced. So um, I think that's what they're going to want to, to push for um, in, the, in the short term. Well, clearly we've scratched the surface of this and there will be a lot to watch out for over the coming months, not least the European Council that's taking place at the time of recording when we understand there will be some uh, further language about open strategic autonomy agreed between leaders. Um, thank you very much, Anna and Denzel, for joining me for this discussion, and we look forward to continuing it next time. For more insights, blogs and analysis, you can visit our website www.global-council.com and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global underscore council.